Hello and Happy New Year and welcome to a new season of Uncommon Decency. We've been off the air for a little bit, we've done a few episodes here and there in the winter, but to kick off 2024 we wanted to start with a panoramic view of the continent, of the key issues in 2024, some things we missed towards the end of 2023, and what we're looking forward to most this pivotal year, not just in European history, but in world history. Joining me today, of course, Francois Valentine and Jorge Gonzalez. Gonzalez, how are you both doing today? Happy New Year, Julian. It's great to be back. Howdy. Jorge, congrats on the Super Cup win against Barcelona. I didn't watch the game, but I understand Vinicius played very well. Um, so well done to you there. And Francois, I'm sure Arsenal will have success in 2020. I, I, I'm one of a rare Frenchies in London who doesn't happen to support Arsenal. I am nominally a Chelsea fan, but I don't think I've tuned in for a Chelsea game for that. Well, Claremont had a big win on the weekend, so we'll, we'll go with that. Yeah, at, at some point they're, they're due to win, aren't they? Uh, so I wanted to start this episode by talking about what is probably the number one issue facing the continent, or at least I think it is. I'm not sure if you two agree or disagree. And it's one that we talk about sporadically here and there um, because it's always on in the background, and that is, of course, the war in Ukraine. Um, I think since we last spoke about it, the United States has gone through an interminable series of congressional standoffs that have disrupted the provision of aid. We've had the outbreak of war in the Middle East, which has distracted geopolitical focus somewhat um, away from Ukraine and towards Israel and Gaza. As we look at how the continent approaches the war in Ukraine, Francois, starting with you, what do you think will be Europe's approach to the war in Ukraine this year, especially with the uncertainty in the United States? Yeah, that's exactly that's exactly it. It's the the elephant in the room or the donkey in the room um, at the moment, where there is this ambiguity on what happens next. And Europe has played an important role in supporting Ukraine. I was reading that about half of all aid, including military and non-military aid has come from, from Europe. Um, but at the same time, the kind of political leadership has definitely been more in, in Washington than it has been in, in Berlin or in Paris, despite some attempts. So what you have at the moment is a continent which could end up being kind of alone supporting Ukraine, depending on you know if Trump gets elected and, and, and what happens after that. So you've got this kind of total flux at the moment and this kind of is, it's, it's interesting because I remember when we were talking about this when it started and we were talking about it last year, the big scare was energy prices were skyrocketing. In the meantime, you had inflation. European economies felt like they were the, on the edge of a cliff. Now, I think it's fair to say things aren't doing great in Europe, but they're definitely not as kind of concerning as they were a year ago. But at the same time, you actually get this kind of wariness that is stronger now than it was a year ago. Um, so it will be interesting to see how it evolves because I am seeing some kind of fatigue in Europe, not just kind of from some pause here and there, but kind of from political leadership is also slowing down a little bit. Hmm. Yeah. Um, I, I think what happened in the second half of 2023 was actually a really interesting sort of paradigm shift in the EU debate over the war in Ukraine, which is that all of a sudden we started having 
a debate about potentially importing the war into the EU's borders. Because the moment you start talking about accession of Ukraine into the EU, uh, you're you're really kind of you're really stepping up the EU's uh, the EU's sort of uh, 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 geopolitical stakes uh, in that in that sort of conflict, which which has been which has been one in which Europe is, has been uh, um, has been heavily uh, you know heavily involved. But now, all of a sudden, in just four months, we're talking about potentially welcoming Ukraine into the union, and that, I think this really radically changes uh, the debate. Um, this is really creating a lot of uh, a lot of um, a lot of ruckus in in the EU ca- Council. If you've been following the debates recently with uh, the role of Hungary and how Hungary has been recently very sort sort of um, well, eventually lulled into accepting uh, yet another uh, aid package. Um, um, because Hungary is essentially saying that there are rules that need to be followed when we're uh, when, when we're accepting uh, when we're giving candidate status to a new country because that that's kind of the thing. We're, this is Hungary has just been totally you know out of out of in just four months has been granted candidate status, which Turkey, for instance, took I think twelve years to 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 be granted. Um, and and this really will be a debate about you know anytime in the EU whenever there is a debate about enlargement immediately you start having a debate about the political structure of the EU it's within the EU itself uh, because as the more the block enlarges the more difficult the decision making becomes in the in the EU council and you're not just having a debate about enlargement you're having a debate about shifting towards more sort of a uh, of a, of a qualified majority voting system in the EU council with uh, some of the larger countries wanting to take away the veto rights of, of smaller nations and that's um, that really is is um, uh, that really is um, is ca- uh, causing a lot of backlash in, in again in countries like like Hungary, but not only. Um, and what what a lot of people really need to understand is that these smaller nations like you know um, Slovakia, for instance, which is very critical with Ukraine. Slovakia, you know, Prime Minister Fico in Slovakia has been incredibly critical with rule of law in Ukraine, corruption, and whatnot. These countries are not just they're not against enlargement. Actually, there are some of the staunchest supporters of enlargement. Hungary has been lobbying for Serbia to come into the EU for, for forever, essentially. Um, they don't. They just don't want. Um, uh, well, for one thing, they're, they're, they obviously have you know uh, special sorts of interests and and, and stakes in, in in Ukraine. In the case of Hungary, there's a minority in Transcarpathia, which feels like they've been. Um, They've been uh, discriminated against. They're not able to build schools where hung- Hungarian is taught. Um, uh, they, they feel like this sort of Ukrainian nationalism that has been on the rise since the Euro Maiden has been really, really, really uh, uh, repressive against the Hungarian minority. Not, not, not just against the Russian minority in the East, but also in the West against these uh, these Hungarians. So, um, so yeah, my, my sort of focus in the new year is going to be how is this debate about enlargement going to shift and going to going to alter. And change the politics of the EU uh, itself. The, the EU has been changing uh, as new member states have been coming in. That is kind of kind of goes with the territory. But in this specific case, we're welcoming a country that doesn't really have an anti-corruption system that is up to the standards of, of the EU. Uh, doesn't really have a minority protections uh, system that is in standard with 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 the EU. Um, and and you know just any number of of qualms. Uh, so. So I'm, I'm looking forward to, to, to seeing how that's going to change the internal politics of the EU. But before we move on, Julian, just want to say 
But the the possibility of Ukraine joining the EU, I think everyone was quite clear on being kind of more of a long-term carrot than a kind of immediate possibility. Um, so, you know, there are definitely concerns about uh, corruption. There's kind of, you know, the, the, the electoral system is being upended because obviously you're going through a war at the moment. Um, but, uh, you know, I think it has to be clear that it would the possibility of Ukraine joining the EU is definitely something that is kind of more of a political symbol than a kind of short term reality. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. Before we before we jump on, and I know Ukraine is a topic that we will return to later in the year to take a sort of much more expansive look at. I'm going to do a couple of quick rapid fire questions for you. So just yes or no, or one sentence of explanation. Hmm. Uh, does Ukraine get admitted to the EU this year? Nope. Jorge? Uh, uh, well, v- very unsure. I, uh, 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 possible. It's possible. Okay. I'll, I'll take it's that as an answer. Um, will Ukraine get F-16s delivered this year? Yes, but not by America. Who? I don't know. Not America. Another country. <laughs> Jorge? Yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go along with it. Look, if you want a different outcome in the war, you kind of have to change your your war policy. If you're going to be supplying with Ukraine, Ukraine with weapons that are insufficient to change uh, the, the, the ball game. Uh, Russia currently holds one fifth of Ukrainian territory. And if you want to roll that back, you certainly have to change the, the weapons that are being supplied. Yeah, I don't. I don't think it will be America though, because I don't think Biden will take the risk of of, of making Ukraine a big election topic by giving giving yeah. the F-16s. To the I, I, I think I think it will come from Poland, but yeah. that's for a later discussion. And then the last question is: Does Ukraine hold elections this year? Yes or no? Um, no, I was reading that it looks unlikely at this point. So, um, I mean, twenty twenty four. Jorge, yes or no? I'll stick with that. I, I think they're constitutionally unable. The moment they snapped, the, the moment they they declared martial law, they they can't um, they they just can't call people to the polls. And I think they also have like an infrastructure problem where they're 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 uh, like the 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 uh, the election um, um, the, the the not the not the the ballot boxes, but the 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 infrastructure in which elections take place is just has just uh, has just been has just been damaged. So so, so that's a no. Yeah, that's a no. Okay. Speaking of elections, we'll move on to uh, possibly the biggest thing on the continent. There's a, quite a few elections happening this year. Um, Jorge, I'll start with you. As we, I know we will talk about European elections and the political wins in Europe uh, as a whole. But as you look at the EU election process, what are you most interested in um, those elections coming in the first week of June, I believe? What are you most interested in in the EU-wide elections? Yeah. Um, so in order for, for the June 9th uh, election to significantly uh, alter the course of the EU, you kind of have to begin from, but by analyzing, you know, how, how, how the commission is elected, right? This has been ever since 2014, the president of the EU commission is in principle selected from the uh, electoral majority that emerges in the European Parliament from the parliamentary election. So they call this Spitzenkandidaten, which means you're you're kind of like connecting the electoral result to the, the, the to the to the to the European Commission, which used to be very sort of, you know, the commission used to be a very an even more opaque uh, system. And that Spitzenkandidaten system was was um, 
was um, interrupted in 2019. There was an, an agreement in the council to place Ursula von der Leyen. Um, but but what's gonna what's gonna change? Uh, what's likely gonna change in in June this year is that look historically the European People's Party, right? Which uh, which um, which has been uh, which was the winner in in um, in the um, uh, in the last um, the last two elections. They they have always invoked the pretext that there is no viable majority to govern in the parliament other than to the left. They said, you know, actually, you know, if I look to the right, if I look to ECR and ID, there's just no, there's just not, not enough votes. So I need to turn to the socialists and I need to create this sort of solid uh, European, pro-European majority with, with the social Democrats, which, which actually always kind of veers leftward because that ends up including the Greens and, and even the communists and the liberals. And the, what the potential uh, is that this election will pro- potentially alter at least the, the rhetoric around that choice, because you're potentially going to have uh, a workable majority to the right of the EPP with ECR and ID both substantially growing. Um, that obviously that doesn't mean that the next president of the the uh, the European Commission will be like Richard Legutko or some sort of like Polish conservative, uh, you know, right winger or whatever. No, it's 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 going to be it's going to be the EPP. But um, but but in terms of the lawmaking in the Parliament, which again is a co-legislator, it pushes for bills. Uh, that b- both the council and the parliament have to agree on that 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 ball game can 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 significantly change if if ECR goes from say for instance I think right now they have about eighty MEPs well what if they what if they should should up to, to hundred and something uh, same thing with ID and and uh, and maybe even some of the non-aligned groups that are to the right like Fidesz from Hungary and whatnot so um, so yeah I think that that can potentially change I think the talk of a rightward shift in the EU is overblown. Uh, it certainly has been overblown at the national level. We saw that in Poland. We saw that in, in Spain, uh, where the results for the right were underwhelming. But in the EU elections, yes, the, the ballgame can can potentially change. So Frost, well, what would we look at? The, oh, yeah. sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off there. So I'm looking at the kind of centrist parties and trying to see how much they will need to get a majority and how many parties they'll need to get a majority. Because... It used to be 751, I think, seats. Then Brexit happened, so we went down to 705. Now we're back to 720, which means you need a majority of 360 seats. Um, the issue is, compared to the 705 seats we currently have, EPP is predicted to drop. So EPP centre-right. Renew, the kind of centrist, that's where Macron is, party, is also expected to drop. The Greens also expect to drop. Socialists and Democrats expect to drop. And also the kind of far left group, the left, is also expected to drop. Which means, in contrast, if they're all dropping, the people who will be rising will be the kind of conservatives and, and much more right-wing parties. So my question is, so far this kind of populist, right-wing nationalist, whatever you, whatever, whatever you want to call them, have been excluded from the kind of commission, and the part, well, not sorry, the commission, but the kind of the, 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 the majority supporting the, um, the commission. And Parliament, and the question is, how can that? Will that still work? Do, do, are they going to have to put together a kind of super large coalition with the, the Socialists and Democrats, EPP, Renew, the Greens again, or is that going to be a bit too tight, a bit too short? So that could be interesting to see how that evolves. Kind of generally, in that something we'll be talking about quite soon. I don't want to spoil it too much. 
I think what we are seeing is increasingly the kind of, again, populist, nationalist, whatever you want to call it, rights being kind of a structural force. And in some countries, um, you get a tripolarization between, you know, the, the left, the center and, and the kind of hard right. Um, it'll be a bit like in France, for example. It'll be interested to see if um, we see country, more and more countries like in Hungary, for example, where you don't have this tripolarization or this bipolarization, but you get a system where you get actually the nationalist right being the dominant political force. So I think that's in, I think also what the European elections are interesting, um, the way they're interesting is they kind of give us a kind of snapshot of political trends across Europe, kind of a kind of um, live pool of opinions across Europe. So yeah, it'll be very interesting to for sure. We've already seen something of a change of the guard with Charles Michel stepping down from his position in order to run in Parliament. Do you think uh, von der Leyen will go forward as the candidate, or do you think she's eyeing up the NATO job? Francois, to start. I mean, for one thing we've learned from previous negotiations on those top jobs in the EU is that they are famously fickle and that it is so complicated because you need one commissioner from each member state. You need support from the different parties in the European Parliament. You there's this, the, Normally, the Spitten candidate system, which means the, the leader of a biggest um, party in the European Parliament should become the commissioner. That should have been Manfred Weber a few years ago. But in the end, they decided to pick someone else and then designed all the kind of rivalries. Sometimes the heads of state don't want a too powerful president of the, of the council or too powerful president of the commission. And so kind of seemingly good candidates get removed or maybe some people will get jealous of the influence of von der Leyen and remove her. So, you know, if I'm in Ursula von der Leyen, I am keeping all my options open because you might be the candidate of continuity, but also at the same time, because of one weird country making tantrum over something that seems seemingly completely unrelated, then in the end you start losing losing your job. Again, I remember the last time, so that would have been in 2019. Last time this happened, there's also the ECB job that was also on the line. Usually the ECB mandate for president is for six years, I believe, not for five. But this time they were in sync. And so Macron was okay with also Love and Delane um, being president of the commission. She's quite friendly to Macron, but also that opened up a position for him to put um, Christine Lagarde as president of the ECB. So, you know, it will be a very complicated, protracted process and if I'm also love underlay and, and there's a there's a top job in NATO, I think I might be aiming for it. Mm. Oh, hey. Yeah. Um, um, you never know with these rumors. You know, it's long been rumored that the prime minister of Spain, Pedro Sanchez, when he went into the last elections in July 23rd, he had a sort of a backup plan of like applying to be NATO secretary general, and and then you started hearing that 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 was all sort of a a fabrication. So I. I don't really know what's on on Ursula's mind, but she's been she's been incredibly resilient. I mean, if you remember this, this really was a at a time when Merkel was still the empress of Europe. She was mm-hmm. she was the um, she was the handpicked uh, yes woman. And and please don't uh, excuse my my misogyny, but she was. But I think in Europe, I think a lot of the times again, like Francois said, the 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 the, the, the council of the EU is really kind of. Where the power broking, uh, where the power brokering occurs, and 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 it you know uh, 
it's very unlikely that um, that that a that a commission a president uh, who loses the support of, of a council will will remain in the job for for long. And she was Ursula was was resilient. I mean, there was if you remember the vaccine procurement scandal, there was a lot of talk that that could potentially uh, be another sort of like. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Um, what was the? Uh, what, uh, it wasn't Romana Prodi, who was the European count, European Commission president, who was toppled in a scandal. Uh, um, in the nineties, I forget his name. Yeah, he wasn't toppled; he resigned. But yes, he was about to get toppled. Oh, yeah, Jacques Santel. You're right. He resigned. Yeah. He resigned. You're right. Um, but yeah, he, she's been very resilient. I think she also, as as you said, Francois, she's been very, very, uh, very strongly backed by by France. She she really rode the wave of Macron's kind of Euro Gaullism when she came into the role. She said, you know, I want this geopolitical commission. I want the EU to be a stronger uh, player in the in, in the in the world. Which 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 is an irony because she came from like she was defense minister of Germany, which surely has to be like. Among the like all of the national ministries in the 20, in the EU's twenty seven member states, the least consequential or one of the least consequential has to be defense minister of Germany. You're running like peanuts, like it's not even a budget. Um, but she she rose uh, she rose and she I think I think she's done she's done a she's done a a great job in the eyes of in the eyes of the the power balance that 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 that, that propelled her. So um, so we'll see. Um, We'll see. I, I, I've also found it very interesting that the candidate of the Liberals has just been named Minister of, uh, of uh, Foreign Affairs in France. He was going to be running for Commission President, Stéphane Sejourné, if I'm not mistaken. He was the, he was the, he was already he, he had been declared. Presumably, no? um, commission might have been a bit of a, a stretch because, again, you know, this is a complicated game and he's a bit too much of Macron's man for other European countries to have gone with it. Um, but the fact is now he's newly appointed Minister of uh, European Affairs and, and Foreign Affairs means that he's definitely not going to be running for the um, EU parliamentary elections as the head of the Renew uh, delegation from France. So he won't be a player in, in Brussels in, in, the, um, in the months to come anymore. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But uh, just one thing, I, I've as I was thinking about all the kind of the dealing and wheeling that is so typical of, um, of those EU top jobs, I was thinking back to... 2009, 15 years ago, when there was a very strong and very persistent rumor that the next president of EU, so to speak, the president of the council would be Tony Blair himself. Um, and in the end, it ended up being shot down, I think, by, by Sarkozy and a few others who thought having, you know, a former uh, powerful political broker on top of them would be too much to deal with. But, you know, just a sign that these rumors should be taken lightly because it is very fickle Hmm. possibly the funniest parliamentary speech of the last 20 years was william hague addressing the rumors that tony blair was going to be appointed president of the european union Um, i do encourage all of you to check that out if you get the chance speaking of british politicians of the center left tony blair being the center left much to the annoyance of some members of the present day labor party one of the only countries in which we might see a resounding victory for the left parties is the United Kingdom, which holds an election likely, probably, almost certainly this year. Um, the latest it can be, I believe, is January of 2025, um, but it is expected to be in the autumn of this year. Francois, I will start with you. Hmm. Is a Keir Starmer, a Sir Keir Starmer premiership inevitable? 
<laughs> so that's interesting. So as some of you might know, I am working in a fintech in Westminster and we published a report at Onward, that's the name of the fintech, we published reports where we're looking at the popularity of Rishi Sunak and the popularity of the conservative brand, if you if you may. And it was quite interesting because at that point, Rishi was quite a popular figure. He was seen kind of a bit of slightly apart from the conservative establishment, but the conservative brand was beyond repair, it seemed. And the question was, will Sunak... Um, be able to save that kind of conservative image or that conservative brand sink Sunak. Um, now, I think I think uh, the answer is becoming a bit more obvious at the moment. But if we are focusing a bit more on, on Keir Starmer, what's quite interesting is, yes, there is a lot of fatigue. There's definite fatigue with the Conservatives, with the Tories. So they've been in office for, for, for is it 14 years now? 14 years. I think there's a real sense of exhaustion. Uh, people are kind of struggling at the moment to kind of point at conservative successes that can be proud of the last 14 years. There is Brexit, but that's a controversial one. Uh, there'll be the vaccines, but that kind of is in the background again. Education is a good one as well. But apart from that, there is a sense that this country is not on an upwards trajectory anymore. And But in the meantime, there isn't a whole lot of kind of enthusiasm for, for Labour coming forward. Um, I think people want to return to, you know, normal governance, but at the same time, it's not really clear what um, what normal means and how Starmer will change things up. So at the moment, you've got this kind of, uh, the Labour Conservative Party conference a few months ago was quite interesting. I didn't go, but some colleagues went. Um, and what's quite interesting is, you know, all the MPs, all the kind of potential ministers and so on, were keeping their lips very tight because this was a case of let's not say anything that could could sink us. Um, I mean, at this point, I think it's clear, but we could see like a landslide of a, of a scale that, you know, got uh, Tony Blair into office in, in, in 1997. Uh, but again, it's not clear that, you know, Tony Blair was kind of a vision, you know, kind of third way and so on, um, underpinned by a lot of work by um, Tony Giddens and so on. At the moment, it's a bit less clear what a Labour premiership would look like and would stand for, apart from the fact they aren't Conservatives, and at the moment, that might be more than enough to win. Pivoting away from the UK, it's certainly going to be an interesting election to watch to see how Sunak performs. I think one thing I would just note is that if there are debates, I would expect Sunak to win those debates and perform very well just on the basis that he is watching him versus trust he just demolishes people in debates because he's just that much smarter than most of the people he talks to um but pivoting away from the united kingdom to central and eastern europe jorge we've talked a little bit about poland on this podcast um i know it's one of the countries that we collectively pay a lot of attention to there have been a lot of fights recently now that donald tusk is the Prime Minister, um, but obviously, you know, he doesn't have that outright majority, and Andrzej Duda is still the president of Poland. How do you see the fights in Poland playing out this year? Yeah, um, 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 well, um, um, I, I think uh, I, I think one of the one of the merits of Donald 
Tusk was that he managed to convince um, a substantial share of the non non peace voting electorate that that the peace government had been had been undermining rule of law, had been tearing the the separation of powers to shreds, had been sort of retiring judges and creating you know you know public quangos and and creating public publicly funded propaganda and whatnot. We dedicated an episode to this actually with Marek Matrashek and, and David Engels. He was he really he really played that 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 card rather um, adroitly. Um, what what is what is really interesting is that um, is that in the in the rest of Europe, um, if, if you ask you know a lot of Tusk's uh, allies in the EPP and from other countries in, in Europe, including the the PP in Spain, um, they will they will tell you they're they're thoroughly convinced that the campaign that has been waged by the European Commission against Poland has only to do with with the judiciary, with the way that, you know, the peace government began by sort of retiring judges uh, earlier um, or began sort of creating these um, disciplinary chambers that oversaw the nominations of judges. Then it really began sort of nominating polit politically, um, politically allied uh, magistrates. Um, but if you look at the broader campaign, this has really not been just about the judiciary. This has also been about the way that Poland has regulated NGOs, the way that Poland has regulated, um, obviously, migration. Um, and, and what you're seeing is you're, you're seeing a sort of a cultural war within Poland over the meaning of rule of law. And you're seeing on, the, uh, on everything to the right of peace, from Tusk all the way to the communists, who were his, his coalition partners, you're beginning to see this mentality where people are beginning to justify this 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 uh, blatant breach of rule of law that you're seeing over the past few days in, in Poland, like detaining uh, former ministers and 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 sort of raiding the presidential palace. People are beginning to justify that because there has been this peace government, which people which people view. And again, by people, I mean it's a, it's a it's a it's a it's a it's a minority coalition of parties. It's a co it's a hodgepodge of parties that disagree on virtually everything, but they they agree on this one point that P the peace government has um, destroyed the internet the international rep reputation of Poland, and that there has to be this sort of purging and this lustration. And and when you talk of lustration in a country like Poland, this really has historical resonances. Um, you know, this the people are. Um, People are reminded that that um, you know people on the on the peace side say you know we're we're back to having political prisoners. This is back. This is the EU SSR. You know the EU is sort of imposing its its um, its globalist wokeish sort of uh, diktats and its its um, its its regime on on Poland. So so I, I really fret for for the future of Poland. It's it's a hugely important country. You've got to, I mean it's forty million people. They're incredibly. Uh, uh, a significant geopolitical player, um, and and I just um, and I, I just really fret because I I just don't see I don't I don't know where where the center has has it's just sort of withered in in Poland. You no longer have the sort of center right consensus. The the EPP party affiliate civic platform has just radicalized so far against the the peace uh party which is the main party in poland it was the first party in in the elections the main vote getter um I, so I, I fret for poland i think that the polarization is just so so toxic yeah can i just add something on this i was reading a very interesting article from um notes from poland who, who do some great stuff 
in uh, in English covering Poland. And um, it was kind of interesting, contradictory piece looking at, you know, the different, essentially analyzing the conversation in, in Poland around, you know, for example, at the moment, public media is being purged of peace political appointees, you know, recognizing that and think about something Marek said when he was on the podcast, that public media in Poland was becoming kind of embarrassingly politically biased. But at the same time, they're pointing, you know, the kind of the large coalition that goes on the centre-right, the communists are pointing their, their own people. And so you end up getting de facto a very intense politicisation, uh, winner-takes-it-all system in Poland that is being built. Um, it was an interesting piece, and they were essentially kind of saying there is a point to be said that they're doing the same thing, but in reverse to, um, uh, especially in the sector of media. But I think if you look, if you take a step back for this, it's going to be quite interesting because what you're seeing in the last few years is Poland becoming an increasingly de facto important player in Europe. Its economy has been doing really well. Um, it took a real kind of moral and political leadership over the case of a situation in Ukraine. But at the same time, because of these kind of constant skirmishes between Brussels and Warsaw, um, that political a kind of rising clout was not translating in Brussels. And Donald Tusk being, of course, um, you know, a former EU bigwig, the hope was that he'd be able to translate na- Poland's nascent power into clout in Brussels. So in that sense, the parliamentary elections will be quite important for, for, for Poland to see if that can translate. And um, I think, you know, for the, for the, for the year or two to, to, to come, it'll be a really interesting thing to keep following is, can Poland be able to shape the EU as against Klautwer. Hmm. I think we'll move into the final topic for this particular episode, which is um, one theme or topic that you think will be a major issue in Europe. Let's, let's call them the black swan events um, or the black swans of Europe in 2024 um, that you think is going to be a major, major storyline that people aren't really paying attention to. And so sort of by way of example, um, I think, you know, this time last year, um, when we were sort of looking at conflict in Europe, one of the big things was what happens if we get a very severe winter in Europe um, that drives up the demand for oil and gas? Would Europe be able to sustain its economies um, despite not having access to Russian hydrocarbons? That was something that, you know, people were talking a lot about this year. We didn't get that severe winter. Um, that would be one example of an event. So I'll start off with um, Jorge. What is your sort of big event that you're you think might shape the comp- the continent this year? Um, I think we we shouldn't underestimate. I'm just going to mention something we've we've not touched upon that I think is is oftentimes overlooked, and, and it won't necessarily be top of the agenda. But that's precisely why I think it is worth bringing it up, which is um, which is which is the issue of China. Um, you know um, what is uh, what is the uh, the the EU's uh, the EU's position going to be when when you when you're seeing these you're seeing this military escalation and you're seeing you know a, a much um, you know or- Ursula von der Leyen spoke of whereas Biden spoke of of uh, of or, or the American debate and the Republicans particularly spoke of decoupling Ursula said de-risking. We're going to uh, we're going to retain strong ties with the Chinese economy. 
we, we are going to, um, but we're, we're, we're gonna we're gonna strip these supply chains from from risks from 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 uh, potential risks in terms of uh, both um, you know uh, uh, ex, you know in, uh, sort of um, uh, strategic sectors that need not be uh, uh, sold away to China or you know even sort of human rights abuses in in in, in Xinjiang. So my my what my 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 sort of um, uh, crystal ball sort of question is is where where is where is um, the conflict in Taiwan and where is the the uh, geopolitical assertiveness of China? How how is that going to change the EU's position? I mean, you you what what, what I find is really interesting is that um, is that there's a uh, cross party coalition in Europe right now that goes all the way from our friend Reinhard Butikofer, who is a returning on the show he's been i think here a couple of times uh he's a he's a green mep he's really 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 concerned with um with uh with uh with uh uh, uh sort of wigger uh wigger uh, labor abuse and 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 human rights in china generally uh and that goes all the way to the uh to the uh the ecr in in, in countries like poland that are also very china skeptic lithuania obviously um so, so I'm I'm looking forward to to seeing how that debate is going to evolve, um, and um, and I think it's um, and I think it's something that uh, that should be that should be higher up on, on the agenda. Francois, what about you? A few things. One I think is a bit of a red herring is a focus on the the rise of a right which will kind of fundamentally disrupt the way the EU works. I don't think so. I think we will definitely see a kind of a kind of nationalist, populist, again, whatever you want to call it, right, on the rise and having increasing share in the European Parliament. But I think what we saw, especially with Maloney, for example, is there's a capacity of his past parties to be malleable to enter institutions when they get close to it, which I think tempers that risk. Um Another thing which I don't think is a black swan as much as kind of a kind of constant trickle of pain for Europe, which is the fact, you know, Europe is a major import of energy and food and that any disruptions to supply chains will be, will kind of impact Europe a lot more than America, for example. So, you know, it could come as a result of what we're seeing at the moment in uh, the Red Sea around Yemen. Um, it could come from, I don't know, something in the South, South China Sea, I think Europe will, will will feel the pinch a lot more than other Europe, European countries. I think one thing which could be a black swan is the issue of immigration, because I think we all remember 2015 and the kind of hysterization of politics it created as a result. The tensions within countries, the tensions across European countries. Um, we are seeing the moment in the UK, for example, the damage, political damage, that you know, uncontrolled political immigration has on government, uh, on 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 ruling parties. You know, we could be you know again if Turkey decides to be disruptive and kind of loosens its grip on the trails from from Africa and the Middle East to Europe, um, or if all of a sudden it becomes a lot easier to cross the Mediterranean, you could see a huge surge in demand from people wanting to come to Europe. Uh, plenty of deaths, of course, in the Mediterranean and kind of completely overwhelmed countries unsure how to do it. And then like in 2015, I don't think you'll get an Angela Merkel saying we will welcome a million of them. I think that moment has passed and has already done 
significant political damage um, to to um, to the Conservatives in Germany, for example. So that will be interesting to see. I think if there is one black swan, again, you know, sticking to the definition of black swan, something which is hard to predict, but at the same time can have a huge impact. I think uh, kind of a big migration surge could be could be it. Yeah, migration was one of the ones on my list, and I think you know you mentioned you know the situation with Turkey, but I think the main thing that would be a driver is we have a growing number of conflicts in Africa, both in the Sahel and in East Africa, and the potential for more flare-ups um, in the Horn of Africa uh, that could drive more migratory surges north into Europe. You know, the yeah. situation in Libya remains fluid. So I think that could be one where that immigration situation becomes a major political topic. Uh, mine is slightly related to that, but more prompted by the recent violence in the Middle East. And that's, I think we might see terrorism back in the news yeah. um, in European cities, as tragic as that would be. Um, I think, you know, we, we've been in the, for you know a decade plus, we were very much in the counter Islamist terrorism mode of security thinking. We've shifted back into a great power conflict mode of security thinking. Yeah. Um, but of course, the nature of international security is that all the threats that you think you've faced tend to return. And I think 2024 might be a year in which we start talking about that again. And to be perfectly fair, we have been, you know, France, for example, and a few other European countries have had so far limited terrorist attacks, but there's been a definite surge. And there's been a few attempts as well, which have been stopped last minute. I think there was one in France where they were planning to uh, attack a kind of random rural village in France and kind of gun down the entire village. Um, so, you know, you're right. I think there's been um, an awakening of kind of dormant jihadist networks in Europe as a result of what's been happening in the, in the Middle East. Yeah, absolutely. Um, we didn't talk about the economy, um, and that's because we're going to talk about it later on this season, uh, among many other topics. So if you would like to hear all those other discussions about Europe, not just deep dives into elections, examinations of the conflicts, both political and military, shaping the contours of Europe and indeed the world, subscribe to Uncommon Decency wherever you get your podcasts. And I do have a note for anyone who has an Android phone. Google Podcasts is going away in April and it will migrate over to YouTube Music. So you'll need to make sure you're transferring your podcast subscriptions, including your subscription to Uncommon Decency. You can also follow us on Twitter and you can email us at uncommondecencypod at gmail.com. Francois, Jorge, thank you so much for joining me for this special episode today. It's great to speak with you both in the cold, wintry weather of January. It's currently snowing where I am, uh, but I hope it's a little warmer where you both are. I'm in London, mate, so I'm pretty cool. There you go. <laughs> Only Jorge's just living up large in Spain. Thank you, folks. Thanks, everyone. Right. Thanks, everyone. Thanks, everyone.